the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke is writing to a friend of his by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus, we're not actually totally sure who he is. There's a belief that he, uh, he's a politician of some kind. Uh, he's certainly a Gentile and, and a Roman citizen. But importantly, what Luke says in his intention in the writing is that uh, Theophilus would have certainty in what he's been taught. And I think that's a really good thing for all of us who are people who have been taught something about Jesus, that we would have certainty in what it is that we've been taught and, and make sure that what we've been taught has been taught correctly. Now, this becomes a really important thing as we talk about words, uh, it, really meaning that all words have power, but only Jesus's words have authority. All words have power, but only Jesus's words have authority. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 31 to 41 is where we're camping out today. And I'm going to read to you uh, verses one, uh, 31 and 32. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. If you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is, in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. So just go ahead and use it. Luke chapter 4, verse 31, 32. Here's what it says. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together here, and I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, that we would be comforted uh, by the fact that your words have authority, and Lord, that we would model a way of being that would reflect the fact that you are authoritative that we would reflect the fact that we can very um, profoundly be able to lean into the things that you say. And so, Lord God, will we have eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So, let me read this to you. Uh, in her book, The Female Brain, uh, Dr. Luann Bresendine, she's a clinical professor of psychology, uh, psychiatry, sorry, from University of uh, Carolina, San Francisco, or California, San Francisco. She claims that the average woman speaks 20,000 words a day, and that the average man speaks 7,000 words a day. Because, so uh, you, you've probably experienced this a little bit, you know. Uh, I know that when I'm having conversations with uh, with my wife, sometimes I'm like, hey, that's a lot of words. And I may not have many words left in the day that, uh, that I would want to use, but I would say that I probably use more than what she claims about men. Uh, women using 20,000 words a day and the average man using 7,000 words a day. Now, when I share these numbers with you, you may say that, well, Rob, that just can't be true. And you're convinced that the male you know, if, like I'm talking to the women out there, the male you know speaks probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20,000 words a day. Um, I think it's important that those numbers, uh, that we remember that they're just an average. That typically, women will use more words in a day than men will. And some of us men tend to talk a little bit more than some women, and some women a little less uh, than the 20,000. But the, I think an appropriate question would be, well, how many words do you speak in a day? Do you speak... Like, are you closer to 20,000? Are you closer to 7,000? And either way, if you think about it, that's a lot of words in a day. And his really important question isn't so much how many words do you speak, as much as it is, like, what are you saying? Because words have power. 
In the book of James, we're told that the human tongue is like a spark that can set a whole forest on fire. In James chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I mean, this is a... Quite a, a, a criticism on, on the way we speak and the way we use our words. As a few simple words can do an awful lot of damage to people. Like, look, just talk to the teenage boy who's constantly told how weird or dumb or worthless he is. Or just ask the girl whose reputation was forever ruined by some untrue gossip. Or just ask the wife who will never look at her husband the same way again because of the hurtful words and the harsh words that came out of his mouth in a fit of rage. Or talk to the husband who is defeated by the words of his wife who is constantly letting him know how much he isn't measuring up to her expectations. Words have the power to hurt and to tear down, but they also have the power to lift and to build up. And I think that's why it's important that we, that we consider Jesus' words. Uh, because it, it is a... a easy conclusion to suggest that if Jesus is in fact God and we believe that he is, then his words will be used perfectly. And if Jesus's words are used perfectly, then there's something to that that we need to take note of. And so I think it's why we take such great comfort in the words of Jesus. Um, specifically when we're talking about Jesus's words, uh, Jesus's words have authority uh, in the passage that we just read from Luke, we find that Jesus is he's in the small community of uh, small city of Capernaum, and he's in the synagogue and he's teaching, and people are amazed by his words, right? And so, when Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, he startled people. It actually says they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority, and they were used to commentary on scripture by other commentators. It's part of the scribal tradition. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, and Mark 1, 22, they add the phrase, um, not their teachers of the law. Like, so he had, or not as their teachers of the law. So the idea that Jesus was teaching with authority, not like their teachers of the law. And if you've ever, ever read any kind of rabbinical writings of early Judaism, you would know the style that wise commentators would uh, reflect on the comments made by other commentators, other rabbis. And so let's say, for example, a passage like what we're looking at now, and you're listening to me, it would be as if you would not address Jesus's words, but rather you would address my words. Um, and, and so it would be, um, the idea would be that a former rabbi has said something, and then we would address what the rabbi said rather than what was said in the word of God. And so with Jesus, he taught authoritatively. With, with the spirit upon him, he spoke more like a prophet than a scribe. And with this idea of thus saith the Lord kind of thing, right? And so rather than saying something like, as rabbi whatever said, Jesus would say, no, this is what the Lord has said. And so he's speaking with a different kind of authority. And it was compelling. And by contrast, anything else that people had heard, um, 
it was shocking. Like Luke actually uses this Greek word called ekplesio, and it means to be amazed, to be overwhelmed in its perfect tense. So it carries the idea of a continued action, not just like a one-time thing, but that every time they would hear from Jesus, it was this continued action of amazement of the authority that Jesus would speak with. And so his words, well, they got authority. And his words didn't just simply have authority by virtue of how he spoke. I mean, that's certainly one thing. But additionally, if you continue looking at the passage, uh, Jesus' words have authority in ways that, that are probably equally shocking for the people. In verse uh, 33 and 34, it says this, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out in the top of his voice, Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, and then verse uh, 35, actually, it says, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the demon threw the man on the ground before all and came out of him, listen, without injuring him. So even that, there was, there was some authority that Jesus would have over, over this demonic spirit um, that it would leave the person without injury, uh, which was obviously something in contrast to what people would have seen before. But while Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, you have this unique uh, thing that takes place. There's a demonic spirit in a man that's present in the synagogue, and it yells out, and the man can't contain it. And so the demon in this man has more spiritual discernment than many, you could say, right? Like, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As the Spirit himself, the demon recognizes the power and the presence of Jesus. But this spirit, this demon, is not holy. It's not passive. It's, 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 it's recognizing something that's greater than itself, right? And so what it's recognizing is, in fact, Jesus, who is holy, who is greater than this demon, and so the whole assembly this, in this synagogue of people get to see this experience. Now, I'm curious about it uh, because I'm, I wonder, you know, is there significance to this demon being in the synagogue? Uh, I'm curious about that. It's, presumably, we could say that um, it, there doesn't seem to be any indication that people were aware that this person was afflicted with this demon previous to this. At the same time, it doesn't say that it isn't there. Um, but I do wonder if there's significance to Jesus cleaning house in God's house. Uh, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to me. But the power is overwhelming to the demon, and so he yells out. And we see this phenomena um, at Peter's door that same evening. People are bringing out all of their sick for healing, but the crowd, uh, in the crowd, there's these demonized people too. And they're also shouting, you are the son of God. And we'll get to that a little bit later. And so what we find is that Jesus' words, they, they have authority because of how he teaches, but they also have authority over demonic spirits. In verse 35, he actually shuts up the demons, right? At the first glance, you may wonder why Jesus stops the demons from speaking. I mean, after all, they're telling the truth, aren't they? And Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Holy One of God. The demons are declaring openly that what the residents of Capernaum may only be suspecting vaguely. So why does Jesus stop the demons? Well, there's only one guaranteed teaching that we can conclude from the Bible on this one, and that was 
And other reasons certainly could be suggested, but there's really only one stated. It's not time to declare Jesus' divinity and messiahship, specifically. Well, and, and, and qualify that. I mean, we do know that from last week's teaching, looking at Luke, that Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah certainly proclaims himself as the Messiah. But his divinity is not something that was to be exposed as of yet. And so specifically, Jesus prohibits demons from speaking because they knew who he was. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, talking about the exact same uh, encounter. Whenever the, impure spirit, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And so there's this timing thing that Jesus was dealing with as well. And so what I find amazing is that you have these people who they're amazed, they're, they're overwhelmed by Jesus' teaching because he teaches with such authority. And not only do they see him teach with authority, but they also see that his words have authority in a way that they've not seen before. And the term Messiah has strong political connotations in the first century. To proclaim Jesus as the Messiah prematurely would keep the people from hearing Jesus' essential teachings. And so even though he proclaimed himself Messiah, um, in the reading of the Isaiah scroll, um, we find here that he doesn't want these things being expressed. And you'll notice, especially in Mark's gospel, that Jesus prohibits some of the people he heals from disclosing it. Because to do so would cause Jesus to be mobbed in every village that he comes to. And, and like what he has to say would probably be overwhelmed by what people wanted him to be. And I want you to notice that Jesus seldom speaks of himself as the Son of God, but rather as the Son of Man. And using the term Son of God would cause him to be accused of blasphemy and sidetrack his entire ministry, right? And we read that in John 10 and John 19. And the demons at Capernaum are either wittingly or unwittingly involved in subverting Jesus' own timetable for his ministry and self-disclosure. And so um, why does he do it? He does it because it's not time yet. The fact that he's able to do it, again, Jesus' words are authoritative even over demons. And, and I want us to think about that because this, this idea of demons is something that, man, we just hear the words and, and or hear that word and, and it conjures up for us this fear, this discomfort of the unknown and all these kinds of things. Uh, Hollywood loves making movies that have to do with demonic presences and this and that. And, 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 and so it's, if you, even if you look on, on different streaming platforms right now, there's such a, a large number of films and shows that highlight the demonic. I mean, we were people who were infatuated with it, but I think partly because, A, it's unknown, and secondly, uh, it's, it's scary, and, and people get a thrill out of that adrenaline rush from fear. But Jesus wasn't afraid. The people may have been, but Jesus wasn't. And so he's like, you're going to stop talking. And they stop talking. In addition to that, in verse 35, we find that, uh, that he has, his words are able to just cast out demons. There are doubtless many demons uh, in people around Jesus that don't betray their presence. In other words, uh, if there's a demon around Jesus, it's likely going to expose itself. Just as there are many sick people in Palestine who don't come um, seeking healing from Jesus. 
But so long as demons don't manifest their control of the demonized person, Jesus doesn't usually confront them. After all, there are thousands of people actively seeking healing and freedom. Why focus on those who aren't yet sure that they want that freedom? But when demons do manifest themselves, Jesus makes short work of them. He commands them to come out. And then certainly the crowds in Capernaum are impressed, right? Like, what is this teaching, they ask? It's, it is spoken with authority in of someone who knows it to be true, one who commands evil spirits must be obeyed. And so Jesus' commands cannot be resisted by the demonic. That is awesome. Again, even the things that are unknown to us, that, that conjure up these fears for us, um, they're subject to Jesus. And so his authority is impressive and it's amazing. And, and you'll... You know, we'll look at exorcisms later on in Luke, and I think that our, you know, we can do that as we look at our own ministry of responsibilities as it relates to these topics. But for now, we just need to observe that Jesus proactively meets demonic interruption, stops it by breaking the spiritual bond that the demons have to control their victims. And so Jesus frees people, listen, by speaking. You catch that? Jesus frees people by speaking, and it happens. And, and, and it's an interesting thing because when you look at this story starting off in the synagogue, we learn Jesus' words have authority because of the teaching, right? His teaching has authority, and people are amazed by it. And then you have Jesus having authority over the demons by speaking. And then almost immediately, and Luke's account is the only one that kind of puts it here. Um, Luke is emphasizing a point in this. But Jesus' words have authority even over illness, in Luke chapter 4, verse 38 and 39, it says this. Jesus left the synagogue, right? So all of these other things happened at the synagogue. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Uh, we know Simon to be Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. All right, so what we know for sure is that Luke points out, I mean, Luke being a physician, he's a doctor, he points out the severity of her illness. He says that she has this high fever. And the phrase high fever uses this root word, um, and you'll catch it. It uses the root word megas, megas. It's, and and we've, we've adopted this word into the English language, right? like a mega structure. Um, you know, a megaphone, you know, like these things, like the word mega is, of course, indicating this incredibly big, larger than life kind of structure or that kind of thing. Uh, but for his purposes here, it implies something great, something large or intense. And so Simon's mother-in-law, like Peter's mother-in-law, is not dealing with a minor cold. This is significant. This is life-threatening, potentially. So the disciples speak to Jesus about her fever, and here we see Jesus interceding on her behalf. And then we see her healed. In Luke, we see Jesus' bedside manner. He bends over her, right? And so there is this, this comfort that he is offering in her direction by being close to her. And, Mark, now, and that's important because uh, if somebody was ill, somebody was sick, then that rabbis weren't supposed to touch them. And so the idea, even I believe in Mark's account, we actually see that Jesus took her hand and is the helping hand of a servant, you could say. Matthew says that when he touched her hand, and so why the difference? Well, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. 
and then understanding that if a Jew touched a sick person, it would make them unclean. Jesus can touch sick people without becoming unclean because his touch heals, proving that they're not unclean. And it may be pure speculation as to the reasons for the differences between the different authors, but it's interesting to see how different writers emphasize different things within the story. Um, you know, if you, if you ask the question, well, did he touch her? Did he bend over her? Did he grab her hand and help her up? Well, the answer is yes to all of them. And so it's not hard to harmonize this stuff. But Luke specifically, in the context of Jesus' words having authority, as in his teaching, authority over the demons, we see that Luke mentions that Jesus rebukes this fever. And so Jesus' words have authority over our human frailty. Are you seeing this? Words of authoritative teaching. Words that are, um, that are capable of commanding demons. He has authority over the demons. Words of authority over our human frailty. But not only that, there's also this idea that there's, these words work in any location as well. Uh, Jesus isn't limited to the synagogue. We see him start in the synagogue and then he's out in with the people. It says, at sunset. The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. I mean, that must have been an incredible evening. An incredible evening. As far as I can tell, these two verses continue the story that we read above. Uh, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, that evening, word got around, right? People started coming. Everybody wants healing. And the statement at sunset meant that Sabbath was over. Once Sabbath was over, people flocked to Jesus with their sick and demon-possessed to have him heal them. Now, they had to wait until Sabbath was over so that they didn't violate the pharisaical law of, of carrying out burdens on the Sabbath. And so there were these rules of things they could do and couldn't do. And, and admittedly, one of those rules, which you can't heal on the Sabbath. Now, importantly, we see that in the first encounter with the demonic spirit, Jesus was in the synagogue, the house of God. In this instant, Jesus shows his authority to be in any location that once again, he speaks and even the demons listen. And it means that God was on the move, meeting the needs of the people, not just simply waiting for the people to show up to where he was presumed to live. You have to remember that um, the temple was considered the house of God, right? And so back when, when Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, they had this tent of meeting that they created. In the tent of meeting, this was the dwelling place of God. And so anybody who wanted to engage with God needed to go to the tent of meeting. And what we're finding is that the, the synagogue or the, rather the temple became that house of God, and the synagogues became kind of these representations of this. And so for Jesus to move from the synagogue, like heals in the synagogue, move from the synagogue into the community, it indicates that God isn't stationary, he's on the move. And so instead of waiting for people um, to come to him, he goes to them. But, but even more amazing is when Jesus speaks, he speaks with an authority that changes absolutely everything. And that's what's going on here. 
Like when you look at it, it, you can't unsee this. It's all about Jesus's words, his ability to speak into things, his ability to teach with authority, have authority over demons, have authority over human frailty, uh, have authority in any location. He's able to make these things happen. And this is the kind of stuff that would have astonished people. Because again, when you mix this together, what you then begin to understand is we have something different taking place in front of us right now. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews chapter one, verse three says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, listen, by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the father of majesty in heaven. And so here's what we find. We find that Jesus' teachings have authority because he is strictly moving in the direction of talking about what the Lord says versus what rabbis say. So he's teaching with a different kind of authority because he's speaking right from God because, well, he is God. And what we find here is that everything is sustained and subject to him by his powerful word. And so what he says happens. Period. What Jesus says happens. And so what we can do there is we can have confidence in the things that Jesus says. So when Jesus says things like, hey, I'm never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, we can have confidence in that because nobody has any ability to trump it. Like, like Jesus' words are absolutely authoritative. And so the promises that he makes, the, the uh, commands that he offers, these have authority. And so what he says happens, what he commands is to then be followed. If, if Jesus has ultimate authority and everything is sustained by his word, then we know that, that whatever it is that he commands, like we have this obligation, and I don't mean obligation in a negative sense, but we have this obligation to follow what it is that he commands. And if you really think about it, what Jesus commands of us, I mean, he's got amazing commands for us that are purposeful, that that bring life to us, right? Like love God, love others, uh, reach people with the sake of the gospel, discipling them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commands, right? Like teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commands. And there's something about Jesus's words that we have to remember have authority and not pretend or live life as if they don't. But it also is that what he declares is true. And so what he says happens. What he commands should be followed. And what he declares is true. And so if he goes and prepares a place for us, surely he will come back and take us there. That's the language of Jesus. In other words, when you're in him, you can have security. Why? Because he said so. And Jesus' words have authority. Our words have power, but his have authority because everything is sustained by his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that uh, this small teaching uh, on this incredibly important topic of your authoritative words, uh, Lord, would be something that would free us. It would be something that would cause us to dive into your word and, and to learn more about what it is that you've said to people and how you interact with people. And so, Lord God, I'm just reminded of this idea that, that 
if we truly believe that you are who you claim to be, then we can have absolute confidence in those things that you say. And so, Lord God, would we grow in our confidence in you as we walk through this week, as we walk through the different scenarios that we deal with in life, Lord, that we would rest in the things that come from you because the things that come from you are true. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.